away in a manger. Many Christmas carols are bathed in so many different legends that separating fact from legend becomes almost impossible. Such is the case with a beautiful and simple carol that tells us the story of the baby Jesus lying in a manger that first Christmas night. Along with Jesus Loves Me, Away in a Manger is one of the first songs that Christians teach children in Sunday school or church. With only three short verses and very simple tune, it's no small wonder that little ones learn it long before they can read. The beautiful and serene picture placed, painted in the carol's lyrics defines peace on earth better than most books or sermons. In 1887, American hymn writer James Murray entitled the tune, Away in a Manger. And as Luther's cradle hymn, Murray further stated that his popular songbook, Dainty Songs for Little Lads and Lassies, that Martin Luther had not only written Away in a Manger, but had sung it to his children each night before bed. I'm sure your parents do that, right? As the song spread across the growing America and people began to sing it home, in churches, and at schools, they often envisioned legions of German mothers rocking their babies to sleep each night with the strains of Away in a Manger. As the song became more popular, some news reports even trumpeted the song's Teutonic heritage and the powerful inspiration that obviously could come from only one great Luther himself. Ironically, not only did German mothers of this era not sing Away in a Manger, they'd never heard of it until the song arrived in Europe from its country of origin, the United States. Where Murray got his misinformation on Luther remains a mystery, yet because of his outstanding reputation as a writer and a publisher, the story stuck. James Murray studied at the Musical Institute in North Reading, Massachusetts, under legendary teachers such as Lowell Mason, George Root, William Bradbury, and George Webb. His teachers marked their student as one of the finest young musical minds they'd ever encountered. Yet, Murray didn't stay the course in school. In the midst of the Civil War, Murray enlisted as an American army musician. During the darkest days of the war, he wrote his first song, Daisy Dean, composed in a Virginia camp in 1863. The now forgotten ditty established Murray as a songwriter. After the war ended and armed with a few of new, of new material, Murray joined the Root and Katie Publishing House in Chicago as editor of the Song Messenger. In 1881, Murray moved to Cincinnati, Ohio to work for the John Church Company, editing The Musical Visitor. He also took charge of the company's publishing department. It was there that happened. He happened upon Away in a Manger. Two years before Murray had printed Away in a Manger in his children's songbook, the general counsel of the Evangelical Lutheran Church say that again, in North America had published the song in their book, Little Children's Book for School and Families. Printed in Philadelphia, Little Children's Book listed no songwriter for the words, 
to the song. The book stated that the tune, a much different one than used by Murray, had been provided by J.E. Clark. In truth, the first two verses of Away in a Manger were no doubt written by an anonymous American sometime in the mid-1800s. The song was probably passed down orally for years before it was picked up by the Lutheran editor by the time it was first published, and no one knew the identity of the composer. In 1892, a man named Charles Hutchinson Gabriel became the music director of Chicago's Grace Methodist Episcopal Church. A poet, composer, and editor, it was the Windy City that Gabriel wrote the Legion of Hymns, eventually more than 700. The composer's work included Way of the Cross, My Savior's Love, Higher Ground, and I Stand Amazed in the Presence. It was while he was at Grace Church that Gabriel discovered not only the versions of Away in a Manger published by the Lutheran Press and by James Murray, but also another unknown version that contained a third verse. He published this new version of the carol in Gabriel's Vineyard Songs. Throughout the new next two decades, the popularity of Away in a Manger grew, as did the myth surrounding Luther's authorship of the piece. Illustrations were drawn and stories were told depicting Luther singing the song to German children, as the real author never came forward to, despite the growing legend. The facts of the carol's origin became more and more diluted. During World War I, while Germany battled the United States, many groups began to sing the words to Away in a Manger, with the old Scottish tune, Flow Gently Sweet Often. This rendition might well have been a protest against any and all things German. Yet soon after the war, when Americans had again embraced the original tune, a new songbook, Words and Song, gave the man named Carl Mueller credit as the musical composer of the song. Where the Boston publisher came up with Mueller's name is another unanswered question. Carl Mueller did not write the music to Away in the Manger. In fact, many believe that he didn't even exist. In the eight, 1945, as Americans again battled Germany in a world war, Richard Hill sorted through the now 70-year-old mystery concerning the carol's origin. He determined that James R. Murray himself probably wrote the music long coupled with a man away in the manger. Yet, as Murray always took credit when he composed a song, it is doubtful he would have deflected the credit to Martin Luther. It's more likely that Murray was given the song and simply adapted it the existing German-influenced melody into four-part harmony for his book. It also seems likely that Murray received the story of Martin Luther writing the piece from the person who originally gave him the song. Whoever he or she is, the unknown songwriter probably didn't live to see the song reach children the world over with its poignant message. Yet, while the mystery of the origination remains, the song's message, depicting the precious moment when the Savior came to earth, bringing peace, joy, and hope, is so strong and so profound that it leaped from a single night, from a single household, to become one of the world's most beautiful Christmas messages in song. The picture that story paints is even more profound and riveting than that of Martin Luther singing away in a major in 
German to his children. Amen. Boys and girls, we're going to sing Away in the Manger. We would like you to sing it with us as you grab baskets from Mr. Steve. Go up and down the aisles. They're collecting any loose offering or change that you might have. We'll go towards our church school, Naples Adventist Christian School. So please give generously. Sing along with us if you know the words. Good morning, everyone, and a blessed Christmas to you. This next hymn is probably the oldest hymn that we still sing each Christmas. In sometime in the uh, about 800 A.D., a Catholic monk, in looking at the text mainly in Isaiah, came up with this song. And it remained uh, exclusively in the Catholic Church for about a thousand years until an Anglican monk discovered it. He spoke 20 different languages, and so it began to get translated into various different languages. The, uh, the idea for the first line of the of the of this hymn is taken from Isaiah 7:14 Therefore the Lord himself 
shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And also in Matthew 1.23, behold, the virgin shall bring forth a child, a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. So this, uh, one of the translations uh, that came down for O Come, O Come was draw near, draw near. So as we sing this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you can see that O Come, O Come flows a little better than draw near, uh, draw near. So O Come, O Come, Emmanuel.
thy spirits by thine advent here and drive away the shades of night and pierce the clouds that bring us light rejoice 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 We've come to recognize over the years great songwriting duos who have given us some of the most enduring music of our time. Rogers and Hammerstein invited us to climb every mountain and then they wrote something else. They said I forgot what I said. <laughs> I am getting a little older, you know. And they told us that it might as well be spring. And then Kahn and Stein observed that it was apropos to let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. And then they wondered at the blessing of one of three coins in a fountain. And then back Iraq and David simply said and asked, do you know the way to San Jose? And in two other songs, they counseled us that a house is not a home. And what the world needs now is love. But believe it or not, the dynamic duo that gave us one of the most iconic Christmas songs never even met. There was no sitting across the table with the lyricist with a pen and pencil and thoughts in his head across from a man or a composer playing a piano to put this song together. Isaac Watts and Lowell Mason never met. Isaac Watts, who was Isaac Jr., was born in Southampton, England in 1674. His father was sort of a radical 
nonconformist who taught things that the Church of England really didn't believe in and some of the established scholars. So actually, when Isaac Jr. was born, his father was in prison. How about that? So Isaac soon showed evidence that he had his father's rebellious nature and his free thinking. And he was quite gifted. But because he did not belong to the Church of England, he didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. He went to an independent school. And there he learned three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And he began to realize that he didn't like the way church music went. Now, have you ever thought that? <laughs> Some of those archaic songs of yesteryear, you know. He was like the young people of his age. He wanted something new because he still had his father's DNA. So he wanted something new. So he kept bothering his father. Why do you all keep singing those archaic old psalms? Uh, he wanted something more joyous. So his father was not a traditionalist. He said, what? If you are so irritated about this, why don't you do something about it? So this spurred a creative burst. And he almost wrote 600 hymns. But tragically, because people like the status quo, they really didn't accept them. In fact, some of them called him a heretic and said that he was a tool of the devil. Well, have you ever said that? Modern music sometimes clashes with the idea of old old things. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. <laughs> a hymn is a hymn. Maybe something is more upbeat and a little still says that Jesus is who he is. Amen. <laughs> so, after a while, he went to the independent chapel and became an assistant to Dr. Chauncey Isaac Chauncey. His name was Isaac, too, so there were three Isaacs in this story. Isaac Chauncey. So Isaac Watts was his brilliant soon. He, within three years, he became a pastor, and the church grew rapidly because he had these new ideas. And he kept preaching his, his theme of changing the way church music went. And he wrote a volume. 1719, which contains some of the classic hymns that we still sing today. We're marching to Zion. You know that one? When I survey the wondrous cross, at the cross, this is the day the Lord has made. He was responsible for all of those. But while studying Psalms 98, and I brought my Bible up here for that reason, Psalms 98, he ran into some verses. 
see here. I had that mark and pulled the thing out. Psalm 98, and he was especially interested in verse 4. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice, and sing unto the Lord with harp and the voice of psalm, with trumpets and the sound of the coronet. Wow, a band. Let the sea soar in the fullness thereof, and the world they that dwell therein, let the floods clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth with righteousness, shall he judge the world and the people with equity. Out of this particular inspiration, he wrote a four stanza poem, which is known today as Joy to the World. Forty-some years later, Lowell Mason was born. He was also a revolutionary. He was up against the same kind of criticism. You are thinking too modern. We like what we have. Go away. I'm going to cut this short because it's a long story. So he continued to write. And he one day wrote a song that he couldn't find words for because he was a student of Handel, and he had sent his classical songbook to a Boston publisher who immediately rejected it. But he kept writing and writing, and he finally wrote this song called Antioch, and he wanted something, some words to go with this, and he looked into this book, and he found the words that Isaac Watts had written many, many years ago, and he meshed it together with his tune and it became joy to the world. A singer in 1911 made this song popular when she presented it with a choir called the Trinity Choir, and it climbed to the charts of that day to number five. This is the first time Watson Mason had ever been on a contemporary chart because it was had this joy exuberance. It made people feel good. It wasn't archaic and old. And so today we have joy to the world. And it also inspired the rock band Three Dog Night. To, do you know that song, Joy to the World? <laughs> Came from the inspiration of this song. Thank you for listening. And joy to you all.
preachers sing. as my predecessors, I need to use something. Many images accompany Christmas. Fun and frolic, snow and decorations, laughter and family gatherings. Images so ingrained in most people's minds that they find it difficult to imagine the holiday any other way. Yet in truth, Christmas only recently became the festive holiday we now cherish. For almost 1,500 years, the observation of the birth of Jesus, observation of the birth of Jesus, was not recognized on every street corner, but left to divinely inspired men who led a hard and demanding life. 
toiling in poverty and serving people who understood very little about the most elementary facets of scripture and the life of the soul. Yet these men stayed the course and left their fingerprints on every church of every denomination in the world today. Monks were and still are the solitary men dedicating every ounce of their being to the Lord and giving up their own families to serve the family of God. Their voices were often the only ones who told the birth of Christ and their lives the only example of Christian faith. Even to those who knew them, monks were mysterious figures. The world was one of sacrifice, their sense of duty second only to the, their humble spirit. Yet from this spirit and life came one of the most beautiful and in soaring carols of Christmas. Much like the lives of the monks, angels we have heard on high is a song steeped in great mystery. Unlike other carols whose origins can be traced to a certain time or a certain place, this song seemingly appeared out of thin air. Because the first to sing angels we have heard on high lived in 19th century France, many believe that it must have originated there. In fact, most sources today call it a French carol. Yet even that assumption is often called into question by songologists. What can be stated with absolute certainty is that this Christmas song must have been penned by a person who had professional knowledge of the Bible and an incredible gift for taking scripture and reshaping it into verse. This fact combined with the use of the Latin in the song's chorus, making it a macronotic carol, seems to indicate that a monk or a priest from a Catholic church was more than likely responsible for writing angels we have heard on high. Because the first published versions of the song used French for their verses, many have naturally assumed that the writer was a priest from France. Yet there is evidence that at least part of this great Christmas hymn was sung before Christianity took deep root in Western Europe. A portion of the carol was used in early Christian church services even before the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as their state religion. Angels We Have Heard on High was first published in 1855 in the French songbook Nouveau Recul de Cantique. And records indicate that the song had been used in church masses for more than 50 years before that publication. During those five decades, the lyrics were coupled with the melody that is still used today. Except for the verses translated into languages other than French, Today, the song is sung exactly as it was 150 years ago. Yet for many, they believe a thousand years or more before that. Monks probably sang this same song as they celebrated the birth of the Savior. The story may well be as old as the church itself. The song's four verses embrace the angel's visit to the lowly shepherds and the shepherd's response. For many biblical scholars, the angels coming to men who worked 
such menial jobs in the field and informing them of the birth of the Son of God symbolizes that Christ came for all people, rich or poor, humble or powerful. The angel's words in Luke 4, Fear not, for behold, I bring you to good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people, paired with Jesus' own parables concerning shepherds and their flocks, symbolize that it would be the common man and not kings or religious leaders who would first carry the story of Jesus to the masses. But while the shepherd's story of why they came to see the babe in the manger is easily identified in all the stanzas, for many who sing this old song, the chorus is an enigma. Gloria in excelsis Deo means in English, glory to God in the highest. A phrase that had played an important part of worship of church masses dating back to 130 AD. During that, that period of time, Pope Telesphorus indicated, a, or excuse me, issued a decree that on the day of the Lord's birth, all churches should have special evening services. He also ordered that in those masses, after reading the certain scriptures about the birth, all the congregation would sing the words Gloria in excelsis Deo. Historical church documents reveal that monks carried this executive order throughout the land and that by the third century, it was a practice used in most churches of the Christ of Christmas services. It can be argued that if the chorus was written within a hundred years of Christ's birth, the roots of angels we have heard on high might go back to someone who actually knew Jesus when he walked the earth. Though unproved, it is a very interesting, inspiring idea that ties to the selfless image of a called member of the clergy, bringing faith alive in order to spread the message of Jesus' birth, life, and death. Another facet of this carol that would seem to tie at least its chorus to the very early Catholic Church is the range of notes found in the chorus. While most modern carols move up and down and cover at least an octave and a half, this testing, thus testing the upper and lower limits of the average singer, congratulations. The phrase Gloria in excelsis Deo barely moves at all. In addition, the melody used by the song never strays more than an octave, and the verse moves through only six notes. This simplicity seems to tie the melody to early chants used by monks and taught to their congregations. <clears throat> Webster defines a chant as singing or speaking in a monotone to a hymn-like repetitive melody. Using this approach, important elements of worship were passed on from person to person and generation to generation in oral tradition. In a day when few read words, much less music, chants helped keep the gospel alive among the common people. Of all the carols born in the chanting tradition, Angels We Have Heard on High was one of the easiest and least challenging, despite the fact that the word Gloria covers three measures and hits almost 20 different notes. Unlike others, which failed to inspire as they taught, this song lifted hearts while telling the story.
and embraced the spirit that a called man of God would have felt as he gave up everything to serve his Lord. So why has this carol of unknown origin remained so popular for so long? Though the tune may be considered monotonous, when the simple text is read, it becomes obvious a few, that few Christmas songs so fully describe the joy that the world felt when the Savior was born in Bethlehem. The lyrics don't just ask the singer to lift up his or her eyes and heart in wonder and observe the beauty of what God has given. They demand it. There can be no doubt that whoever wrote Angels We Have Heard on High not only believed the words that they wrote, but relished that belief. Ultimately, it is the sensitive retelling of the angel's shepherd story that carries this song and has made it one of the world's most popular Christmas carols. As Kenneth W. Osbeck wrote in his devotional book, Amazing Grace, the Bible teaches that angels are the ministering servants of God and that they are continually being sent to help and protect us, the heirs of salvation. Angels We Have Heard on High speaks of the incredible, special relationship between heaven and earth, God and man, like few songs ever have. It embraces one of the most important elements of faith, just as the shepherds embraced the good news that they were given 2,000 years ago. The mystery of who wrote this song points back to the lives of those who are called to spread the gospel, to keep the story alive, to provide a means for people everywhere to hear and know the message that came to earth on that first Christmas. One of those nameless servants wrote this song to share the story with others, though he has long been forgotten what he believed is alive in not only his song, but in hundreds of millions of souls around the world. His prayer has been answered. The angels are still heard. The Savior still welcomed. And the soul still stirred. Gloria in excelsis Deo.
So we see such a variety of the origins of our precious Christmas carols. But we would always expect with beautiful music honoring Jesus that it would come from someone like a monk or someone like Martin Luther. And we've heard that people sometimes thought that, or sometimes it was true. But sometimes, and sometimes we didn't know where it really came from, a hymn or a carol, but sometimes it came from the oddest places. Oh, holy night, surely from some very profound person. Not always, and not in this case. A very surprising beginning for this beautiful carol. 50 years ago, or 50 years after, excuse me, not 50 years ago, 50 years after the French Revolution, 
and I'm sure the country of France was just barely getting back on its feet in terms of living life. And 30 years before Germany came in and trounced France in what was called the Franco-German War, which set up the conditions that led to World War I, which then set up the conditions that led to World War II, and on and on we go. But, but this, today, here we are, and it's almost Christmas, and we don't really want to hear about wars right now. But let me tell you the story of this beautiful carol and its surprise beginning. Travel with me back those 175 years, those 50, back to 50 years after the French Revolution, to a short time of peace in between wars to a little village in the countryside, not too far from Paris. And let's listen to the story of a man who had drifted away from religion. We don't know that much about Placide Capot. We can imagine that he might have been close to the church as a child. Perhaps he was a choir boy or studied to become a priest because he seems to have some knowledge of the Bible, which not everyone did. And he seems to have been a person of letters. He, he grew up to be more known for his poetry than anything else. And I don't think it became terribly famous, but around town, probably a little jingle here and a cute thing there, or whatever was his taste. He was a purveyor of fine wines, so he was the one that would bring a new load of wine from Paris or wherever his distribution point was around to the villages. And one day, as he was on his way out of town, I suppose, because he went from there to Paris from time to time, as he was on his way out of town, the priest of the local church stopped him and said, he had a strange request, and he said, Placide, Christmas is coming, and I'd like you to write a poem that we could use in the Mass. And he was probably very shocked. He hadn't been seen in church for a while. And he didn't, he didn't say no. He might have said, I'll think about it. And what happened was on the road, as he traveled back to Paris, he did think about it. And he thought, well, if it's, if it's for church, it has to be something that's, you know, holy. And maybe from the Bible? And he knew the story of Jesus' birth, as it is told in Luke. 
And so he thought about that, and he probably reread the story several times, and he must have had a Bible with him, or he looked one up or found one, or maybe knew some verses by heart, or maybe some of these carols reminded him of the story of Jesus. But as he traveled to France, to, um, back to Paris, he was contemplating what was it like that night that Jesus was born. And we can only imagine that he might have been driving in the evening. Maybe he saw the stars all around him, and maybe it was a beautiful night. And he imagined, what would it be like if there was an angel? And maybe, maybe he even had a vision. Who knows? But he was very inspired, and he was totally taken with the angels that sang, the wise men that came, the shepherds that came the night that Jesus was born. And he wrote a poem that he called, you would say in English, O Holy Night. Cantique de Noël in French. And matter of fact, he, as he read over his poem, this poem that he wrote, he liked his poem a lot. And he said, you know, this ought to have some music with it. And he didn't, he wasn't musical. So he thought of his friend who was very musical and was actually writing. He, he had gone to music school and he had written an opera or two at that point. And I don't think he was terribly famous, but he was, he was getting, a, getting known as a musician. And so, and so Placide looked up his friend, Adolf, and he said, would you write the music to this? Put this poem of mine to, to music. Well, we know and love the music to O Holy Night. And again, it brings to mind someone who probably had a profound relationship with God. And perhaps he did, but it wasn't Christian. Adolf was a Jew. And he wrote the music for his friend. Three weeks later, at Christmas Eve, the church had a new song, and they sang a holy night for the first time. And so we think about how God uses us and calls us to things that he wants us to do, where he wants us to serve or give or tell the story. And you know, you remember what Jesus said, that if the people didn't talk about him, the rocks would cry out. God can tell the story through whoever God wants to tell the story. God can reveal himself to whomever he wants to reveal himself. And so we have a beautiful, godly, wonderful, God-glorifying song written by a man who had not a stellar 
reputation for that. And by a Jew who didn't even know Jesus, but was very touched by the lyrics of the song. So I welcome you. To enjoy a holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul.
Christmas and happy Sabbath. Shirley and I are going to have prayer together this morning. Christmas is the time of year when we celebrate the birth of baby Jesus and the joy that he brought to the world. And it's also a time when we begin thinking of what we will do, what changes we will make in our lives in the upcoming year. Are there things that we want to do a little differently? And so we make commitments to ourselves, don't we? Most of us. So in Luke, we read about Jesus having been tempted by the devil and then after the temptations, of which of course he succeeded, right? And he went back to Galilee and he wanted to go to his home in Nazareth where he grew up and be around people that he knew. And when he went and then he went into the synagogue on Sabbath and they handed him the book of Isaiah. And he took that book and in it he read from Luke chapter 4. Wasn't Luke chapter 4 when he was reading it, but it is now. Verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So, I would like us at this time to realize that Jesus had a mission and we're to join him in that mission. Isn't that what he asked us to do? And he told us what that mission would be on this earth. So at this time, would you please bow your heads or kneel as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you make all things new. Thank you for all that you've allowed into our lives this past year, the good along with the hard things, which have reminded us how much we need you and rely on your presence, filling us every single day. We pray for your spirit to lead us each step of this new year. We ask that you will guide our decisions and turn our hearts to deeply desire you above all else. We ask that you will open doors needing to be opened and close the ones needing to be shut tight. We ask that you would help us release our grip on the things to which you've said no, not yet, or wait. We ask for help to pursue you first above every dream and desire you've put within our hearts. We, we pray for your wisdom, for your spirit to be constantly present with us. We pr pray that you would make us strong and courageous for the road ahead. Give us ability beyond what we feel able. Let your gifts flow freely through us so others would be drawn to you. We pray that you'd keep us far from the snares and traps of temptations that you would whisper in our ear when we need to run and whisper in our heart when we need to stand our ground. We pray for your protection over our families and friends. 
We ask for your hand to cover us and keep us distant from the evil intent of the enemy, that you would be a barrier to surround us, that we'd be safe in your hands. We pray that you would give us discernment and insight beyond our years to understand your will, hear your voice, and know your ways. We ask that you would keep our footsteps firm on solid ground, helping us to be consistent and faithful. Give us supernatural endurance to stay the course, not swerving to the right or to the left or being too easily distracted by other things that would seek to call us away from a close walk with you. Forgive us for the times we have worked so hard to be self-sufficient, forgetting our need for you, living independent of your spirit. Forgive us for letting fear and worry control our minds and for allowing pride and selfishness to wreak havoc over our lives. As we seek, seek to have your mission be our mission, we confess our need for you, fresh, new again. We ask that you make all things new in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives for this coming year. We pray for your refreshing over us. Keep your words of truth planted firm within us. Help us to keep focused on what is pure and right. Give us the power to be obedient to your word. And when the enemy reminds us where we have been, hissing lies and attacks our way, we trust that your voice speaks louder and stronger as you remind us as we are safe with you and your purposes and plans will not fail. We ask that you will be our defense and rear guard keeping our way clear, removing the obstacles and covering the pitfalls. Lord, lead us on your level ground and help us to keep our eyes focused on you. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.
going to invite uh, Henry and Sylvia to come forward, please. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is a very famous verse, especially around this time of year. It says, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. Today, I have the distinct privilege and honor to dedicate Matthias to the Lord. When Henry, Henry and Sylvia have been attending our church here for a while and he approached me a couple few weeks ago wanting to dedicate Matthias and uh, I had noticed that they Sylvia hadn't been to church I knew she was pregnant but it wasn't until he gave me the news that Matthias had been born and so I think it was last week I asked him Two weeks ago, I said, you getting any sleep? No. So if you've been a parent, you've been there, you've done that. Uh, but today, we decided to do it for more than just being Christmas. For the name Matthias means love of God. And what better illustration than to present a baby boy to God on a day that we have adopted to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. So, Matthias, I did not pinch him, I promise you. There you go. We're going to kneel here, and I invite you to pray with me as we pray over young Matias. Father in heaven, here's this beautiful baby boy. Not too long ago, you gave us your son who came to this world just like Matthias. And his name represents the love that you have for us, for his family. And you gave us your son to be God with us, to be loved amongst us. And so today we pray for Matthias to resemble that same love and to be the light that you have dreamed of him becoming. I pray for Sylvia and Henry. May you give them strength. May you give them wisdom as they bring this young boy up to be a God-fearing young man. And may he grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I know.
Sylvia and Henry, this is just a small token. May God bless you, and may you, he continue to grow up to be a beautiful baby boy and handsome young man. Okay? God bless you. Good living, Diva. This has been a long day for the band. I have the difficult task of summarizing a 30 to 40 minute sermon in three minutes. So I'm going to do it this way. Isaiah, as I just quoted, wrote long time ago before even Jesus was born that a son was going to be coming. And in that verse is the verse I just quoted you. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. There was a winter of, in a, in a town in Austria, in the year 1818, and a gentleman by the name of Joseph Moore, who was a pastor, and his passion was kids. He was walking home and he wrote the poem to this song, Silent Nacht. And he, as he walked and he thought about that poem, he wrote, wrote down the lyrics he, and he stuffed it in his drawer at his church. Until one day, the senior pastor asked him to prepare for the Christmas worship. He got everything ready. He got the special music. He got the choir he got everything ready to be presented. And the, on the day that they were going to have that program, the organ was not going to play because it was broken. For some odd reason, whatever could go wrong that day went wrong. And so he quickly fumbled through and he was... He, prayed a, a quick prayer and he said Lord what should I do and immediately the poem that he had written he went home and he searched out that poem and then remembered that he had a friend who was a musician by the name of Franz Gruber but talking about being under the gun so to speak he was making the last minute adjustments to the evening program that was about to take place in a few hours. And he runs over to Franz's house and he says, I need your help. I need your help because I have this poem, can you put it into music? He looked over it, started thinking and humming and he said, you're gonna have to play this on a guitar. Amen. <laughs> I thought you liked that. 
And in two hours, he wrote the music, the score to Silent Night in 1818. It wasn't until much later. Because the way that songs spread is that they had transient workers and they would come in. A, a, a few months after this program, they brought in a gentleman to fix the organ. And, and so Joseph Moore taught the song to the organist. And the organist, wherever he went after that, taught that song to the pastors and, and the musicians of local congregations. And so on and so forth until the musicians began to play it every Christmas season. So by the late 1800s, it was a song that had already been translated to over 20 languages. There are stories that even during the American Civil War, they would cease fighting for a few days and you could hear the soldiers from both sides singing together, Silent Night, Holy Night. And so, Silent Night has become an all-time favorite. It has been the most recorded Christmas carol of all time. And it was done in a spur of the moment, two hours before it was actually supposed to be sung. And so today, as we sing Silent Night together, a variation of this song that was composed over 200 years ago, I hope as you see and sing the lyrics, you will see that Jesus is the reason why we're here. Jesus is the reason why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus is the one who is the light of this world. And Jesus is the one that gives us freedom from sin. Will you join us in taking out your phones and turning on that light as we dim down the house lights and create our own silent night?
invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father God, we are grateful for this opportunity just to remember of the precious gift that you gave us long, long ago. And as we celebrate Christmas, may we never forget that you came and you were one with us. You became one of us. You lived for us. You died for us. And you give us eternal life because of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this season of reminding us that the greatest gift of all is the gift of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the, your gift to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you. Have a wonderful Sabbath and a Merry Christmas.